Welcome back to For a Living. And yes, it's still called For a Living. I did not up and change the name again, but it is a bona fide pleasure to have you here with me. And I hope that despite these damned times, this episode is finding you healthy and well and with a sense of hope. For what are we without hope? Look, I don't mind admitting to you that I come to you anxious and intermittently angry as we careen from crisis to crisis. At the same time, paradoxically perhaps, I feel hopeful and purpose-driven and engaged and lucky. Oh, my dumb luck. Call it privilege if you prefer. I'm okay with that. That's just so absurd. But I've been meditating on like the intersection of anxiety, indignance, and hope. You know, in the context of a discussion of Weimar Germany, I recently had some dreadfully difficult, but I hope liberating conversations with my students about how they navigate fear and anxiety, anger and indignance, hope and despair. As always, my students teach me so much. You know, they really help to anchor me. That said, pandemic teaching has unmoored me. And now this shameful, senseless, shocking disruption of European peace, I'll confess to you, my dear listener, it's eroding my focus. It's chipping away at my spirits. But in this age of anxiety, I'm so grateful to feel supported by my students, my friends, my family, and by listeners like you. You know, there was an unprecedented outpouring of attaboys for the season opener with Benjamin Rubloff. Hey, what can I say? I come out swinging. Benjamin is a visionary and a beautiful man. Look, I'm just honored I had the opportunity to share him with you. And grateful that some of the fine folks who listen to our podcast reached out to show a little love. And you, my friends, you're always welcome to reach out. All my contact info is in the show notes. I'm always happy to hear from you. And if you love hearing from me, and you want to do your part to keep this thing going, if you strive to support independent creators, you're cordially invited to head over to patreon.com slash living and enjoy some rewards for your patronage of this project. And with that in mind, I'm really grateful to give a shout out to a new Studs patron. My man Bruce supported me when I was a wayward young man. He was a teacher and a mentor and a friend. And this podcast reconnected us after a long time. Now Bruce is retired. He's on the road, Jack Kerouac style. And I'm super happy for him and grateful to have him as a patron. Love you, Captain. And thanks for your continued support. I first met today's guest when we were both wayward young men. Indeed, I was his history teacher almost 20 years ago. Brian Trahan was delightfully funky and wicked talented, both as a student and as a musician. 
And I don't mind telling you, I was taken by the kid. So much so that I watched his career from across the Atlantic, always blown away by his music and the poetry of it all. And a couple years ago, I had the pleasure of watching him commence a career as an artist and a producer in my fair city of Berlin. And I say to you without exaggeration that it's been an unmitigated joy having him back in my orbit. He's become such a big and beautiful part of my life in Berlin. He's a loyal friend to and piano teacher for both my daughter and I. He's producing all the songs that I'm writing and recording about the podcast conversations this season. And I'll tell you, working with Brian Trahan has probably been the most fulfilling and instructive creative project in my life. And when you listen to him explore his work as a producer, you'll see why. You'll see. Now, I should note here that Tempted as I might be to invite Brian onto this podcast to discuss his work as a singer and a songwriter, we agreed to discuss his career as a producer. Now, I imagine that most of my listeners care deeply about music, but I'm not so sure that everyone tuning in here has lifted up the hood and dived into how their favorite tracks are produced. So that's exactly what we do. So join us in conversation about the art of music production and stick around to the end to hear Brian explore and share some of his own music. Super exciting stuff. Brian Trahan, thank you for welcoming me to your fresh, new, beautiful Berlin-Kreuzberg studio. It's an honor to be here and a pleasure to be in conversation with you. So how do you describe what you do? I'm a music producer. And uh, what that means is an artist will bring me in a musical idea, a song. Obviously, with a song comes the reason that they wrote the song. And I take those two things and try to help them find the most presentable way to share that with the world. They'll choose a genre and a general approach, how they want to present themselves. And we will kind of hone in on the specific reasons why they wrote the song and why they feel the song is important to the world. And I kind of will help them arrange the song. I'll help them with the lyrics to make sure they all agree. Um, with the song structure, we can rearrange it. We can uh, make it shorter or longer, faster or slower, change the key of the piece, which just is the home universe that it lives in. And then I actually will continue on with the process into the mixing side of things, which is once we've recorded all the instruments or programmed all the electronics or whatever it is, I then will mix the song and send it off to a mastering engineer who then finishes it. And that's when it's finally done. So basically, as a producer, I can be responsible for any of those things, from arranging to mixing to hiring musicians and choosing a studio, placing the microphones, working on the computer, doing the editing, and then applying the effects that make all the instruments kind of fit all together. 
In a way, sometimes I feel like it's delivering a musical baby for an artist because they've lived with these songs for a long time, sometimes and often they're about very personal, very deep things, uh, an experience that they'll never forget or that changed them forever in some way. So in a way, I, I'm kind of the babysitter. <laughs> I'm like maybe the language coach or something <laughs> in a foreign language for their child. I feel like that's kind of what it is because most artists don't speak producer language or the technical computer language or the microphone language. I mean, many do, but it's usually, you know, they're there for a reason. The reason they come to a producer usually is because they don't know that side of things. So I'm kind of helping their child, yeah, just become ready for all the various ways that people will experience the child out in the in real life. Yeah, and yeah. Through different sets of speakers, uh, in different listening environments. Yeah, a song uh, where somebody just plays an acoustic guitar and sings for the entire song, when you're sitting next to them, can entertain you fully forever. Right. Like, it could change your life. But if that same song is being played at a coffee shop or something in the background of a lot of other noise, a lot of times it's just hard to get the same sort of excitement or entertainment out of it. And so as a producer part of it is to continually reinforce the meaning of the song uh, in various ways with various different instruments just to to full just represent the idea as fully as possible and obviously there's a lot of trust that goes into this when an artist introduces me to their child they want to see if how I'm affected if I'm not interested at all obviously they're not going to want to spend time with, with the three of us. But if me and their musical child have a strong connection, I think over time, actually, what happens is once we have this trust built up, they'll introduce me a new child and kind of be trusting me to tell them if it's worthwhile or good enough <laughs> or something like that, which is very strange because obviously they wrote it for a reason. The content of the music is meaningful to them and it's really just whether or not I can see the value of it or if I can share that with them. And so much of it is to like go in together as almost like another parent for the child and kind of introduce the child to the world around them. Wow, the metaphor really does work. Yeah, it really does. So it sounds like there's a lot of, you know, trust and vulnerability that goes into that. And I'm sure we're going to talk about it in our time together today. But I have to ask you, like, how did you get on this path? I know that you're a wicked talented musician. Talk to me about how you got on the producer path. Mm. Yeah, so I started playing music when I was really young. I was a classical piano player, but I was always drawn towards composing my own music and playing with other people. And obviously I wanted to be in a rock band like everyone else in middle school. Yeah, I did. Uh, uh, the coolest bands at the time were Blink-182 and Green Day in seventh grade. <laughs> and um, so that those were some of my first experiences playing for an audience and buying recordings. And as soon as I got my first band together, we 
we won a contest and recorded in Gravity Studios in Chicago, which is... Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> That's like the Billy Corgan... Yeah, uh, Smashing Pumpkins yeah. did some recording there. And just knowing that he had played that piano that I was recording on was was uh, so inspiring. It wasn't really the recording that stood out to me. It, it was more the mixing process because basically we left the room and the engineer did whatever magic he was doing in there. <laughs> and when we walked back in and played it for us, it really sounded like he had filtered everything that wasn't good enough or wasn't wasn't serving our song out and it was just really capturing all of the best components of what we had brought to the table and keep in mind we were 15 at the time i mean i was singing like two octaves higher and and uh you know the drummer could only sort of keep time and i mean bless our hearts we, we did our best but he somehow found a way to extract all the magic and at that moment i was really wanting to pursue this path and i remember i asked the engineer his name was manny i said i really want to do this i think i, I might be interested in working in a studio and he said no man you don't want to do that <laughs> like this is the worst job you could ever imagine don't don't even think about it basically and uh but you weren't put off at all evidently you are an epically talented musician I'm, I don't know how it feels to hear someone say that, but this is just a statement of fact. <laughs> Your music surely will stand the test of time. And you could have gone that path and you still play music and you still record music and you could have maybe devoted your entire professional life to just writing your own songs and recording your own songs. In addition to doing all of that, you chose to go study audio engineering. Right, exactly, yeah. So can I just ask, like, what was the draw to you of pursuing this in a really academic way? Yeah, good question. I mean, to be honest, the thing that inspired me the most was recordings, like, from my idols. Like, hearing what Fiona Apple was doing, and also Wilco, yeah. and other bands where they were just really writing these somewhat i mean simple pop songs but just presenting them in the most creative ways and that's always what i've been drawn to as a producer and as a musician in general and songwriter and um i think just the the ability to uh have something that you can repeat or that you can play back and and live with over time it really sets recordings apart from live music in a really special way also to be able to be really precise and perfectionistic which is definitely part of my nature <laughs> um, yeah yeah it's kind of nice to be able to fix a mistake here or there and also to really fully capture uh, emotion or a feeling yeah yeah so in part because of your predilection towards perfectionism in part because like you really like to dial things in and like to get the essential components of them you ended up going and studying audio engineering right you pursued this very seriously very academically right 
And the audio engineer role somehow fits into the role of producer, right? Yeah. It kind of gives you the toolbox you need to be self-sufficient in this role. I feel like as a producer, you're kind of expected to at least be able to do everything required to get a song from start to finish. Whether that is playing all the instruments yourself or hiring the musicians to play the instruments, whether it's engineering and mixing yourself or taking care of finding those people, in some way you need to have an understanding of all of the pieces. And yeah, studying audio engineering gave me a bit of a foundation for the, the engineering side of things. But yeah, I would say that it's, it was like the scales I needed to be able to become a pianist. Yeah. So one thing I really look forward to doing in, in our conversation today is to talk about your role as, as like a song midwife, sometimes babysitter, sometimes co-parent, and also keeping an eye on some of the technical sides. It's a full-on, as they say, left-brain, right-brain affair. So you have always struck me as someone who has a rather unique capacity to connect with people in really innovative ways. I admire this about you, and I know that a lot of your work has to do with connecting to artists in kind of a vulnerable space. Right, Artists bring their creative projects to you. You, as I understand it, like seek to receive them with open arms. I have maybe 20 questions about that. And I think <laughs> I want to start here. You are in demand. People want to work with you for a whole host of reasons that I'm sure our listeners will come to learn over the course of our discussion. How do you choose projects? How do you choose artists to work with given that sort of mutual vulnerability that's required to really like attack a song and mine the reason for it? In general, when it comes to actually meeting the people I work with, it's not so often through referrals, it's almost always a personal connection at a music hang or some sort of tour, a band is touring and I meet someone that night or it's almost always the same way you'd make a friend. <laughs> so it's just like something to do with a new friend, sort of, in a way. Yeah? Yeah, like... You can like rely on serendipity and connection and like if you dig talking with them, if you enjoy sharing space with them backstage at a concert or at some sort of music meetup, then you feel like you could enjoy working with them professionally as well. Exactly. And what I always do when I first meet a new client is uh, we, we come to the studio and listen to music together for a while. Yeah, we just show each other the songs we love. First, I let them show me something, and then it makes me think of something, and then I show them that, and then we keep going like that. And, you know, it's so obvious in 15 minutes, like, am I enjoying the path that we're going down, or are we going towards something that I'm trying to get away from or that I don't particularly connect with? 
because if that's the case, I also know tons of other producers and I'm so happy to let other people who specialize in other types of music deal with different things. But I'm always excited to challenge myself and try a new genre or a, something I'm less comfortable with. So let's say that you meet someone somewhere and you feel a connection to them. You all sit down, you play a couple of tracks for each other. Mm -hmm. You share some words, you share some feelings, you share some vision, and you mutually agree that you want to move forward in this relationship. I think I might actually be most interested in how you arrive at a shared vision with artists. You have your sensibilities, they have theirs. You have your experiences, they have theirs. I mean, you're there to produce their music, but they came to you for your sensibilities and your sound. Please talk as, <laughs> as much as you want about how you arrive at a shared vision? Well, um, I know a lot of the technical stuff about how to get an idea to sound a certain way. Like if you want something to sound bright and aggressive, I know which mics to use, where to put them to achieve that. If you want something to sound gentle and smooth, there's another types of equipment for that. But at the very core of, of how to arrive at a shared vision, I would say it's all about the lyrics. And I'm almost exclusively working with songwriters. I did just start working with an orchestral composer and I'm orchestrating with him. And that's a whole different world. And I love that as well, because it's less clear in terms of the direct intentions. But with words, they're so evocative and they're so, they're so personal, the words. They come straight from the person, almost always in the heart of an experience that that person has been through or is going through. So we arrive at the shared vision. It's really just if I can understand them in that space that, where they wrote the song. Like, where does the song come from and can I be there with them? or not. And yeah. like if it's, I, I see artists every day who like get up at an open mic or something and play music that I just, I can't feel that feeling that they're feeling because it's not part of my ethos. But anything about nostalgia or heartbreak or, <laughs> or um, I don't know, like political music, those are basically the- That's your wheelhouse. My wheelhouse, yeah. Yeah. And poetry, I mean, yeah, I love poetry. I love, uh, and I, I love clarity as well. I love metaphors. And I mean, I think it's pretty broad, the stuff I'm interested in. I also love pop music so much. I love singing about dancing. I love like when people are just talking to their crew or I have a pretty broad taste, but there's with limitations. Yeah. You have broad taste, but you do indeed have taste. <laughs> Thank you. Right? Yeah. So I can go on, but <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe maybe the best way to go on is to hear an example of 
a project that you've worked on. I mean, if you're down for sharing some music that you've produced, perhaps you could talk about how you helped to cultivate a shared vision with a particular artist that has come to mean something to you. I'm sure there's a bunch of artists to choose from that would fit that bill. What do you want to dive into? Cool. Well, one of the artists I produced a couple years ago, his name's Daniel Sharodi. He's Australian. Yeah, we connected particularly well. I actually met him by doing work for his sister. We did a full-length record together in Sydney, actually. That's one of my all-time favorite records I've been a part of, but it's not out yet. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but I absolutely love Daniel and his voice and his music as well and his whole ethos. So, so he came to me wanting to make a record that sounds basically like it's from the 70s. He loves John Lennon. He loves Paul McCartney. He loves uh, the singer-songwriters with acoustic guitars, Bob Dylan, you know. Yeah, so with Daniel Shirodi, he came with these demos that were actually really beautiful sounding, really lo-fi, really dated. He had done them on a tape machine with his friend, and uh, they really had this special old character to them, and his voice is absolutely beautiful, but in this kind of degraded presentation, it actually worked really beautifully. And um, we listened to some music together. He showed me some references that were both old, like Neil Young or Paul McCartney, but really lo-fi artists who are from Australia as well. And I really got into this idea of trying to make something that had this kind of golden beauty of of like the 60s and Motown and kind of the slow, the more ballad singers from from the, you know, Motown era mixed with just the unique power of Daniel's energy and voice. And he's an incredible guitarist. Yeah, I mean, I have literally, I have an example here of us coming to to a shared vision on a song. <laughs> Wait, like you and him talking yeah, about, really? Like, yeah. Play like, it, play okay, it, I want to sure. hear it. Yeah, so this is the song It Still Hurts. And <laughs> this is us kind of singing ideas to each other. How cool. Look. Uh, Cynthia. Like a resonance bend. Yeah, yeah. Like you turn the knob like to like tune it by ear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, on the when it hits the G minor, right? Like and slow, like late. Mhm. Mm I don't know if it should happen twice. So that's an example of us finding melodies together. Just within one of his songs, we just wanted extra parts. It really just sounds like making strange whale calls to each other, but yeah. that's, the, that's the musician's way of communicating, I guess. But um, yeah, and uh, here's another song of his, but it's called Mary, and this is the first time he played it for me, actually. Mm 
So that's him just playing it on acoustic guitar, and then afterwards we talk a little bit about it. So yeah, and then I start, we start talking about specifics, but <laughs> wow. Yeah, so this is the first time Daniel played this, this song for me, and it's about a girl who's lost and doesn't really know what she wants or needs. And then the chorus is, Mary, wait for your man. Mary, wait while you can. Mary, wait for your man. That's it. <laughs> it's a very simple song. And it talks about her just wanting to be with someone or having these ideas and then kind of... He loves having this careless energy in his music. Yeah. Kind of reckless, but also careless. And by careless, I mean kind of off the cuff, like Bob Dylan sort of energy where right, right. someone like him who, who can sound like he can't sing a note to save his life, but he's actually a really great singer when he's, you know, choosing to try to sound like that. It's the same sort of thing with Daniel. He, his voice is always beautiful, no matter what he does with it, even if he's whale calling. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so we kind of went into this concept and we wanted energy in the song because we kind of channeled Mary's anxiety in this feeling, this wanting to find a man. And then he just comes in the chorus and just says, Mary, wait for your man. Like, like don't rush. Don't like jump into everything. Calm down. There's like a restlessness There's and a an restlessness. anxiety that you're trying to pursue, but he's also trying to pursue like a calm. Like... If I'm hearing you right, you're saying like there's some sort of nexus between her anxiety and frustration and the speaker, in this case, the singer's advice yeah. for patience and space. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Or not. You don't have to, no, hu you don't have to is, humor me. It is. Okay. That's true. Yeah. So in the verses and in the intro, it's very calm and kind of like a little bit dreamy. And then a drum comes in. It's very classic sounding how it came out so i actually can show you the next phase of it so after he played this for me i reworked a couple things that just weren't working harmonically there was an issue with one of the chords he chose uh it just was maybe more dissonant than would have been enjoyable to listen to we went fully dissonant but i can show you actually i think right there I know it's 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 subtle thing, but there's just an extra note in that chord that doesn't work. So we fixed that, and then the bridge wasn't done at all. So we kind of, I helped actually. That was one of the th my contributions in the song was to kind of harmonize the bridge, which means write the chords for it. And he had he had three chords, and then I kind of took them and spun them further and further away from where we were originally. And that was intended to be for a guitar solo, which is kind of the catharsis of the song, where, yeah, she really just explodes out of her own feelings and dances or parties or something like that. I don't know. 
This record was recorded at Funkhaus, and I chose that studio because, well, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Nils Fromm, and we were working in his actual room, which was super exciting. Oh, wow. Yeah. We were talking on the phone, smoked a bowl together. <laughs> Don't tell my mom. <laughs> okay. Uh, it just ha so happens that that room is one of the best sounding acoustic spaces in the world. And I really wanted to capture his music in a space that had a really special room sound, like a special resonance. It's not often that you hear records these days recorded in spaces that have an ambience already. Usually with the advent of digital reverbs, it's just so much easier and more efficient and gives you more options if you just record everything pretty dry and then you can add the reverbs later. Yeah. But here in this case, I mean, they also have really beautiful chamber reverbs and plate reverbs, which are basically just different types of resonating things that you can put sound into that yeah. creates the sense of reverberant space. We just recorded the whole band live at once. Um, it was a bass, drums, and guitar. We kind of did a sketch of the arrangement. I, I did that in Logic. That's part of being a producer as well as making demos and mock-ups. So I kind of just played a drum beat with my fingers, and then the drummer listened to it and then made it sound more real and just better because he's a real drummer. <laughs> and uh, so here's some of that original recording from the Funkhaus, just straight from the board. So by the way, you can already hear we switched from acoustic to electric. We want it to be kind of an electrified energy. And the bass tone, we were going for a really classic bass sound. See, this is all stuff that, as a producer, you you have to manage the, the whole kind of feeling of each instrument and each element. And the way you record that and the way it, it all just affects the feeling you get from the instruments. So... Mary's waiting for her heart explode She's got no reason No direction Home She's got love on her side But she's in Her head So Mary won't you wait on me Instead So right there, you really hear the room on the drum set. That's what that room sounds like. It's a beautiful sound. You can hear the, the ambient space of the room here. This is really what was special about working in that space. Another thing about it so far is we went with a really melodic bass line. It's not just playing the roots. The bass is really walking, and it's kind of the counter melody in this section. Can you talk briefly about that decision? Yeah, we wanted the feeling of walking or kind of moving somewhere, like kind of wandering a bit. And that's really what you get from that bass line. Also, some of the effects we chose later also helped with that sort of nature of this wandering mind. Yeah, so let's keep listening a little. She came from nothing, had nowhere. And now she's wondering why it hurts so much. 
So again, we come in with a deconstructed drum beat. It's still this sort of unsure energy. And then we're kind of slowly building up to something here. And then when he says, she's got love on her side, is when the hi-hat starts being really steady. And now she's wondering why it hurts so much. She's got love on her side, but she's out on her own. Mary, it's time that you know. Yeah, so shall I continue this exploration? I mean, I could go. Certainly. Well, I think you have to because I've heard this song and there's a point at which things go cattywampus. <laughs> yeah. And we would be remiss if we didn't explain the how and the why of that and then to hear things go off the rails a little bit. Cool, right. Yeah, so right now we're listening to the initial, this is only the rhythm section and the vocal, the raw take, it's not even an edit. So that moment we just had is actually where it goes cattywampus, but you haven't heard the rest of the production yet to, right, hear, yeah, right. to hear that. We, we wanted the pre-choruses, which is just the in between the verse and the chorus, you can have a pre-chorus that kind of pumps up the chorus a little bit. And in this case, we went for just pure dissonance in that moment. And he had already come with that in the original piece as he wrote it. Mary, it's time that you know. And you can also call those sections a breakdown. And that's kind of what it is in this case. It's kind of this like things get confused and then he gives an instruction and it, and it becomes clear again. Mary, wait for your man. And then it's just steady again. So yeah, this is all the stuff that happened between that original demo, he, which is him literally playing it for me the first time when he came from Australia to do this record with me, to the studio when we went in the first day at the studio to do all of the major tracking for the record. We were working with a great band. We had no rehearsal. This band heard the demos and came in ready to go and just played the tracks. And we gave notes. We did maybe six takes per tune. This is kind of the old way of recording, which is really um, live. It's a live feeling. There's no click track. There's none of this modern stuff that makes it easier to work with later or more perfect. It's like so you, we, we end up leaving a lot more imperfections when we work this way, and it, it gives a more natural result and a more honest sort of feeling at the end. Can you give me a sense of any substantial disagreement or dissonance that emerged in creating a shared vision between you and Daniel and these musicians that you hired? Wow. <laughs> yeah. And sort of your role in bringing everyone together and moving the project forward in the optimal direction. Wow. Yeah. I mean, 
It's funny you should ask that because in this particular track, or actually it wasn't this one, but in this session we did have a an incident between <laughs> one of the band members and Daniel. I mean, in general, to answer your question, the artist has the final say. What I'm really doing as a producer is trying to kind of glorify their vision and their experience, kind of to uh, give every everything I can to make it feel for them the way that they dream of it being, you know, like the best the best case scenario for their vision. So if if I have an idea or I bring something to the table and he's like, ah, I'm not sure, maybe not, then I throw it out. Unless if I don't feel like he understands what I mean, which sometimes happens. Sometimes I'll have an orchestral part in mind that's very specific and I can't really sing it to somebody. There's a few things like that where you just can't, there isn't really a program or anything that you can do a mock-up that can represent what something could be that's in your head. And in these cases, you really have to describe the feeling you want with that idea. And then they can say yay or nay from that. And then, you know, you, you have to just let these things go. Like as a producer, this is the main thing is like, you have to know that you're facilitating someone else's creativity. That's your, that's your job. And a lot of my inspiration and creativity gets into every project that I work on, of course. But what I'm really trying to do is just represent the artist the way they want to be perceived. Like, I don't normally make lo-fi music, but in this case, it was really the right thing for him and his music. So we, we went that way. Yeah, so this is actually a session where the drummer and and him had a big disagreement about Daniel wanted a specific drum fill and the drummer didn't like the fill. And Daniel was like, well, it's my music and I want you to play it this way, basically. I mean, and the drummer was upset about that. And um, what's your role in that? <laughs> I mean, wow. Because you want to promote a positive working environment. You want everyone to like stay inspired and stay creative and stay true to the collaboration. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like there was a little bit of butting heads and I'm going to hazard to guess that that's not entirely uncommon. Exactly. So exactly. what's your role? What's your work, man? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely also the peacemaker <laughs> in these situations. Like, Talk to me about that side of your job. Well... I mean, when you start to feel tensions between two musicians, like there's usually something else at play, you know, it's not about the music. And these people didn't know each other. So in this case, it's not easy to get a read on, on what's going on, but you know that it's personal, you know, it's something personal with, with them, uh, like not even between them, probably something going on for one of them or the other or whatever that just is causing the conflict in, in the moment. I don't know, in that case, uh, the singer actually left the session and then the drummer went and talked with him and reconciled it. And I think, it, you know, it's just like any situation where there's people butting heads, like you have to let them work it out on some level. But what I can do is just like remind people of the mission and talk about like if we want to be doing it together because 
if someone doesn't want to be there, they shouldn't. Like, it's never worth it. Whatever you're paying them, it's not worth it. It's always better to let someone leave if they aren't well or can't do a job that they've agreed to. And it's a bummer, but it's like, it doesn't happen often, to be honest. Okay. It's very rare. And uh, this one was easy to diffuse and very short and fine. And other times it's much worse, you know, someone gets fired on the spot or things like that. Is it the case that most people who you get into a studio are generally pretty enthused to be there doing what they love, making music, collaborating with other people, and making a buck doing it? Hmm, that's a tough one. Oh, God, I wish the answer was just an easy yes. I know. It's not that easy, huh? No, because session players, I mean, yeah, like they're giving a lot of themselves, but there is a potential that they're a bit disconnected emotionally. And some people aren't very willing to dive into an emotion or a concept, an emotional concept which for me is kind of the whole point of producing a song is to find that. So the hardest is if like you're trying to explain something in non-musical terms and a session player isn't willing to go there on an emotional level instead of just a technical one. Wherever you go, there you are, Mm -hmm. right? And they might show up to a session and just that day they're not emotionally available. And there's an infinite number of reasons that could explain that, uh, which is not to impugn that person at all. They might be suffering grief, loss, instability, and they bring themselves to the session. And you, in your work, have to just try to keep them in the mix until you can't. Yeah, exactly. And it's usually, you know, like I'm saying, it's usually that they're not bringing their lives or emotions enough. Like, I'm always wanting more, you know? Yeah. And I tend to always call the same people once I find the people who are really engaging in that way and willing to, like, take notes that aren't about which drums you hit where or which notes you play where, but are literally just about how they're supposed to feel while they're playing them. That's like, I'm probably like annoying to some people in that way, but maybe to others, it's refreshing (laughs) to have that kind of intention. So I have two very strong urges right now. Okay. One is to hear where this song goes, Yeah. but the other is to ask you a really specific question about something you just said that's really important to me. Okay. And I hope that our listeners, our dear listeners, who I know want to hear what happens with this song by Daniel, uh, I hope that they're patient with us because... (laughs) because I have this question about the technical side of your work and the technical dimensions of your work and the feeling of it. So in going through your history, it should be duly noted that you studied audio engineering at a stellar school for these things, Mm. about the best you could do, right? Yeah. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. And more or less. More or less. And you have a mastery of the technical sides of things. It's okay. (laughs) There's no way to respond to that. But I think our listeners should know that you are very serious about technical stuff. Yeah. 
But at this stage in your career, it seems to me, perhaps with that mastery under your belt, you're really interested in feeling. Yeah. And I wonder if you could talk about the intersection of the technical dimensions of your work and the big feels. Mm. Wow. You know, it's funny. When I played that clip of Daniel and I talking, I realized that the only things I was saying were technical things, actually. Like, I guess... On some level, I start with the technical stuff and get it out of the way as fast as possible. I think it's just like speaking a language. It's like when you're first learning the language, you are figuring out what's the grammar of this sentence? Like, how do I say this word? What's the word again? This sort of thing. And then once you get the technique, you, you're free to kind of, uh, yeah, focus on the more the reason that you're there, which is to like communicate emotion i think that's the reason for music and some people don't actually this is a really interesting thing that i've been running into sometimes some people don't write music to communicate emotion they write it to for fun or as a as a game or as a challenge sometimes like to see maybe what's possible explore possibilities with rhythm and and melody and for a long time, I was really just, I saw no value in this. Somehow, I feel like I was judgmental about it. And I'm starting to come around to this again, this idea of music for music's sake, still being like worthwhile, you know? Um, I hate to even admit that I, <laughs> that I thought differently. But personally, as a producer, I, if I don't have emotions to grab onto to guide all of my decisions and a story, I'm a bit lost. I'm, I'm really that type of a person and a producer. So like for songwriters who really tell stories, I'm full of ideas. For, for anyone who doesn't know why they wrote those lyrics that way, which is also a, a way that people write lyrics and it's fine. I just uh, don't usually know what to do like what beat <laughs> i could choose any beat or i could choose anything any approach any chord progression and it's a bit overwhelming the options and in, in those wide open like like i'm saying it as if it's a lack of intention but i guess now i'm starting to open myself up to this idea that it can be an intention for there to be no intention huh but anyway, yeah. No, no, no. That's... I've been, this is one of me questioning myself about my own process because I don't want to be judgmental of other approaches. I mean, the, everyone has their blind spots and that's one of mine. Well, I think those are two different things, right? Like one is being judgmental of other people's processes and we agree that you don't want to travel that path because that's not who you are. Yeah. The other side of it is giving yourself an opportunity to evolve and, you know, reacquaint yourself with some of the more technical sides of things. But you really do seem, in our previous discussions, in front of the piano and otherwise, you're looking for the feeling. Mm -hmm. And you're building things around your estimation of the feeling that goes into a song. And 
I can't help but ask, again, despite yeah. my interest in moving forward and hearing more of Daniel's work, it seems to me that to that end, you want to create a space in the studio where there's a lot of big feelings. And I can't help but wonder, like, when you have that, when you're trying to promote that, like, vulnerable space where everyone can have their big feels, like, there's a certain volatility and unpredictability to all that because everyone's got to be available for that and when they are available they have to allow themselves to be vulnerable and i think to do that you really have to cast ego aside yeah and so what i want to know is like how how the producer in this case you like how do you create that kind of environment where people can really feel open to express themselves and to have big feelings and to maybe cast some of their technical prowess to the side to make the feelings front and center for this project and if only for this day. Because if you could show me how to do it, my life will be better. Wow. No, I really, I believe this. I think our collective knowledge of how to create spaces like that matters more than ever. So in this context, the way that this space for feelings is shared and plays out, it's less about meeting somewhere and more about me going to them. It's really like I have to join them in their space and then we can go somewhere together, but I really want them to be shining the light down the path that we travel. And I want to go there together. And I, I like connecting and feeling things through other people. And uh, the moment that we're really connected is when they see me reflect it back to them. So we have to talk a lot first about every song. Like It's not like I just hear it once and then say, oh, I got it, I got it. It's going to be this drum beat, this concept. We're going to double the tempo and we're going to make you a star. <laughs> no, it's not that. Yeah. It's like, where are you? Why did you write this? What are the lyrics about? Who are they about? Sometimes it, I, it's too personal. That's fine. Then I start just, how about this? How does this feel? And then I'll change the chords or I'll play it on the piano or I'll play something along with them while they're doing it. Like that is when, that's when the trust is formed. If I'm showing them things and they're feeling that, yes, this belongs with my music. This is part of me. This can, can belong to me. And it's a very personal and, and close connection. While you were describing that, I kept on thinking, it sounds like you're trying to fall in love with each other. <laughs> yeah. I think it's really like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, genderless love. You're falling in love with the music and you're falling in love with each other. It requires you both to just embrace each other. Yeah. It's actually, it's even more like each song journey is, a, is its own relationship. Yeah. It's like this song is the relationship and we're both in there together. We just experience it together. Yeah. Even, you know, some people come with, with basically everything's done. They're ready. And even then, by the end, I feel it like them. They've been in love before. Yeah, exactly. 
exactly right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. And it's like it's their baby. It's it's kind of like raising a child together, maybe more than falling in love. It's like it, that's really more yeah, like what yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's their fucking baby, and I, and they want me to take care of it with them. They're asking, like, are you going to treat my baby right? It's like, <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> like, I can't know until we start. Do you cry with any frequency in this process? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. During vocal tracking, I usually cry at least a few times. And that's when I know we got something. But uh, I think, yeah, the emotional response is definitely a good indicator. And it can be really uh, overwhelming when you're working with someone who's like, every song is like just straight from their soul because it's just emotionally draining. It's like exhausting. Yeah, I slept for 14 hours after... A session once, I mean, maybe even more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the life of the new parent: sleep when you can. Right. It's like, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, with all of this in mind, I think our audience has earned the opportunity to listen to this relationship that you developed with Daniel and to hear this baby grow up a bit. <laughs> So uh, you've heard so far an intro, a verse, a chorus. Then there's a post-chorus, which has a bass solo. Things calm down a bit. And then we have the big adventure. <laughs> so after the second chorus, she explodes out and maybe her spirit frees up a bit. And um, I'll show you the original and then I'll show you what we did to it. Yeah, so that's the bridge, and you can hear that it sounds like you're covering a lot of ground. It sounds like three chords, but it's actually a bunch and a big cycle, and you're, you're like going on a whole adventure there. And um, we just wanted the energy to really go through the roof here. So let me jump to the, the stems and show you a couple things that we did to make that happen. Lost in her ways, and it's all that she's known. So you can already hear there's a lot more elements in the final. We added a piano, we added another electric guitar layer, actually many, and then a ton of backing vocals. So here is that end of the second chorus going into the bridge.
So yeah, we kind of really excited it there. There's this piano on the right side. Is that you? Yeah, that's me. <laughs> and this delay on the left ear. So in the, the piano's in the right ear. And then you can hear this offset version of it in the other ear. Yeah. And that's a trick actually from Beatles era production. It gives a sense of width even when you have a mono source. And since there's so many elements in this mix, we made the piano just mono. We don't want it to be a big character. If you make something stereo, it's much more of a character. Like the guitars are in stereo, but the piano is just supposed to be the icing on top. So then I can show you the final mix as well. Okay, and so the interesting thing about this is that's the stems before the final processing and they sound somewhat polished, but by the end we actually wanted it to be more lo-fi than that. So this is the final mix and it's actually, you'll hear the difference. Yeah, so you can kind of hear that it's darker, it's less bright, less exciting, but then there's this feeling about it that's just different. Yeah. Hey, man, I'm having too much fun. I have so much more I want to talk with you about. Would you be willing to turn this into a double episode and come back for more? Sure, yeah, great. Can I live my dream right now? Yeah, what? Okay, ready? Uh-huh. I'm not going to try to do a voice impression, but I'm going to try to hit the beats right, okay? Okay. I'm going to try to hit the beats of Rishikesh Earway of Song Exploder, and I'm going to say, and now this is Mary by Daniel Chiroti in its entirety. <laughs> <laughs> I just thank you for helping me live my dream. I'm in, I'm in a proper studio, and I got to say exactly that. Can we hear the final cut? And then we'll come back for more. We'll listen to some more music. We'll maybe even hear some of your own music if you're down. Yeah, of course. Yeah? Yeah. Yay. Yay, Sweet. us. All right, let's hear it. Okay. Mary's waiting for her heart to explode. She's got no reason, no direction, home She's got love on her side, but she's in her head Mary, won't you wait on me instead? She came from nothing, had nowhere, had no one And now she's wondering why it hurts so much 
She's got love on her side, but she's out on her own. Well, Mary, it's time that you know. That's Mary by Daniel Shiroti, produced by my main squeeze, Brian Trahan. I've linked to Daniel's work, and I've linked to Brian's work in the show notes to this podcast. And that is the first of this two-part exploration of the work of Brian Trahan. He's beautiful, right? I think he and I did something special right there. So special. You might want to tell a friend about it. Just shoot him a link to this episode. Maybe do it, like, right now. And just saying, you can. Now, Brian and I will pick up right where we left off next week. And he'll walk you through his process of producing Berlin-based artist Kelsey Bray. And then he'll share with us some of his own music. I know you won't want to miss it. I mean, how could you miss it, really? <laughs> okay, take care, my people. 
big hugs. Big, warm, safe hugs. <laughs>